Hello, and welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. This is the show for anyone who wants to learn how to think. Your brain was designed to think deeply, but thinking often loses out in the battle for educational efficiency. Real thinking gets pushed to the margins and eventually abandoned in far too many cases. I know there are many, including some educators, who don't believe that thinking can be taught. My students in my nearly 45 years in higher education, however, regularly told me on course evaluations that I taught them how to think. I believe I can help you with my proven strategies. talking today about the third element in cultivating learner's mind. That element is focus. Focus is an ambiguous word. It applies in the efficiency exploitation realm, where it shows up as intensity that looks for powerful and productive ideas and discards those that don't make the cut. That disposition can be extremely valuable and we'll explore that type of focus later this season. Focus is also needed in the exploration realm, and that's where we'll settle in today. To recap where we've been in the previous two episodes, curiosity drives you to explore, and not just to mine your current catalog of ideas. As you explore, various items and ideas vie for your attention. Attention selects something, and that leads to perception, which is a basic awareness of particulars. To move farther mentally requires you to focus. In this sense, focus requires you to limit the field of your exploration, at least temporarily. You want to find out more about the thing or the idea. You want to give it due regard to assess its nature and what it might contribute to your thinking. If you've listened to previous seasons of this podcast, you may recall that I am a microbiologist. Microscopes of all sorts have been my stock and trade for 50 years. Observing something with a microscope requires moving intentionally from a relatively big picture to an increasingly small part of that picture at progressively higher magnifications. Without this sequence, you have no context for what you're viewing, and you're liable to misinterpretation. We capture this colloquially as, you can't see the forest for the trees. The same goes for the concept of focus in your attempts to know and understand using exploration. You must clarify what you are looking for. This requires you to formulate a question that you're trying to answer through your exploration. A focus question helps to direct your exploration, your search. Sometimes focus involves purposefully taking on a different point of view. The thing that has caught your attention is intentionally viewed from a different perspective. This is like deciding to use a particular kind of microscope or staining technique to image a specimen. 
It is remarkable how different the same thing can appear when viewed differently. Epistemologist Esther Meek uses the word reflection to capture the idea of focus. Here's what she says, quote, I think it's helpful here especially to consider the concept of reflection because it has about it some sort of quality of secondariness. It is a pulling back from something in order to consider. There has to be something that is being pulled back from in order to count as reflection. This, John Murray, a philosopher, says, is how we may say that all cognition is recognition. Recognition is a combination of attention and perception, podcasts one and two this season. Reflection is an act of focusing on what recognition has captured in our mind's eye. Reflection calls a halt to our exploratory search while we ponder whether we've encountered an idea or an item that makes a cognitive contribution. Rapid skimming searches of the Google variety are usually too pragmatically driven to result in true reflection. Many people lack the patience to explore the sources in detail to unearth their arguments, their rationale. Instead of reflection, we expect our search terms to provide ready answers to our question. The default cognitive paradigm for most adults is an unremitting commitment to mining the knowledge that they already possess. Cognitive neuroscience calls this exploitation. Exploitation is viewed as time efficient. It's especially a temptation to those who have true expert knowledge, that's most professionals operating in the area of their expertise, Exploration seldom adds anything of enduring value, they reason. But what if the answer to a question or the solution to a problem involves concepts that are not yet in their sights? Ah, then the emphasis on mining their existing expertise paints them into a corner. Perhaps they have professional myopia. Perhaps they're not really asking the right question. Perhaps they need to explore. Consider the classic story of the uncovering of the structure of DNA as a cautionary tale. Maddeningly to experts of the time, they were outdone by two neophytes. Watson and Crick stepped outside the plodding science of the time and found the express lane to answer one of the biggest questions of the day. What is the nature of the gene? The answer to this question established the foundation of molecular biology, which was so revolutionary it was termed the new biology. Its implications continue to ripple out today in innovations such as mRNA vaccines and gene therapy. The difference between exploitation and exploration paradigms are stark. Composer Leonard Bernstein is operating from the exploitation paradigm when he says, quote, To achieve great things, two things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time. 
Notice that Bernstein already has a plan and that he's watching the clock. He doesn't have quite enough time to execute his plan. James D. Watson reflects on his state of mind during the two years or so that he and Francis Crick were on the hunt for the nature of the gene. He says, quote, Much of our success was due to the long, uneventful periods when we walked among the colleges or unobtrusively read the new books that came into Heffler's bookstore. In direct disagreement with Bernstein, Watson says, it's necessary to be slightly underemployed if you're to do something significant. I was very underemployed when we solved the structure of DNA. Watson says he lacked time pressure and was free to explore. The roots of his success he attributes to exploration and not to laser-focused, time-pressured exploitation. Watson candidly, some would say too candidly, laid out his state of mind in his memoir, The Double Helix. As a 23- to 25-year-old, Watson and Francis Crick were establishing the structure of DNA, which they published in 1953. Here's a bit of context. Biologists and biochemists in 1951 were biased in favor of genes being composed of protein and not DNA. A significant experiment argued compellingly in 1944 for DNA and not protein, but most scientists remained skeptical. Science is often extraordinarily incremental, methodical, tentative, and thorough, and as a result, tends toward exploitation rather than exploration. When science is committed to the wrong model, exploitation is deadly inertia. This is what Watson and Crick were prepared to exploit. Watson said about the early 1950s, You should have thought that with all university geneticists talking about genes, they should worry about what they were. Yet almost none of them seemed to take seriously the evidence that genes were made of DNA. Very few scientists were even working on DNA. Two of the few who were were uh, Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin, both of whom were known to Watson and Crick. Both Wilkins and Franklin were careful, cautious, thorough scientists. Watson in the Double Helix says, Maurice Wilkins continually frustrated Francis, that's Francis Crick, by never seeming enthusiastic enough about DNA. Francis felt he could never get the message over to Maurice Wilkins that you did not move cautiously when you were holding dynamite like DNA. Watson and Crick were not patient experimentalists. They were much more given to proposing theoretical models and then testing them using other scientists' data. Francis Crick says of himself, I learned how to see problems, how not to be confused by the details, and that is a sort of boldness, and how to make over-simple hypotheses. You have to, you see. It's the only way you can proceed and how to test them, and how to discard them without getting too enamored of them. 
All that is a sort of boldness. Just as important as having ideas is getting rid of them. Watson was 23 years old at the beginning of the story, having a newly minted PhD, and 25 at the end, with the crowning achievement of his life, the structure of DNA in his portfolio. Crick had started in physics and moved over to biology in pursuit of a PhD. In his mid-30s, an older graduate student when he worked with Watson, Crick had little patience for the tedium of experimental science. Both Watson and Crick were inquisitive and extensively networked with other scientists in the U.S. and especially in the U.K. They took DNA seriously, and they felt it was just a matter of time before others took it seriously. They wanted to understand DNA before anyone else got there, because theoretical models are intellectual constructs that are attempts to account for experimental data. They focused on model building. They also relentlessly collected experimental data, both published and unpublished. Here's a 1979 summary of Watson and Crick's work. It was a quarter century ago, parenthetically now a year away from the 70th anniversary, that Watson and Crick, playing with cardboard cutouts and wire and sheet metal models and sorting out the few controlling facts from a hopscotch of data, elucidated the molecular architecture of the genetic material itself, a double-railed circular staircase of deoxyribonucleic acid, end quote. Watson and Crick had a very different approach from the experimentalists that they uh, worked with and mined for data. One of those was uh, Rosalind Franklin, and Watson says, in regard to her disposition, it was downright obvious to her, Rosalind Franklin, that the only way to establish the DNA structure was by pure crystallographic approaches. As model building did not appeal to her, the idea of using tinker toy-like models to solve biological structures was clearly a last resort. Only a genius of Linus Pauling's stature could play like a 10-year-old boy and still get the right answer. Linus Pauling had uh, at this point, just recently published the structure of uh, part of a polypeptide, a part of which is part of a protein. Um, the part was, had a repeating structure called the alpha helix. Watson says, I soon was taught that Linus Pauling's accomplishment was a product of common sense not the result of complicated mathematical reasoning. The alpha helix in proteins had not been found by only staring at X-ray pictures. The essential trick, instead, was to ask which atoms like to sit next to each other, parenthetically looking for patterns. In place of pencil and paper, the main working tools were a set of molecular models superficially resembling the toys of preschool children. In other words, Watson and Crick were uh, 
mimicking part of what Linus Pauling did in his successful pursuit of uh, the alpha helix in proteins. Model building is an exploratory quest. It involves an openness to experimental data and a willingness to discard models that don't measure up. At its best, it's a bold refusal to be sidetracked by a few bits of data and to focus instead on looking for patterns. You can find on my website, deepandurable.com, a great deal more on how Watson and Crick put things together and how their models were revised in the face of new data. I could get geeky or wonky here, but uh, I hope I won't. The essence of Watson and Crick's effort was a process of continual refinement and sometimes elimination of competing models. So let me just list some uh, experimental facts that constrained the model building of Watson and Crick. Here's where it could get geeky. Uh, DNA is composed of a sugar called deoxyribose, a phosphate, which contains phosphorus and which makes it an acid, so deoxyribo for the sugar, nucleic acid, recognizing its acidic character. And it also contains four nitrogen-containing bases, complex structures called nucleotides. Uh, this much had been known for many decades before Watson and Crick. DNA can be crystallized, purified to the point where it forms crystals. And crystals can be analyzed by X-ray crystallography to determine the arrangement of atoms in the crystals. This is the contribution that Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin made to model building. Uh, data like that from Wilkins and Franklin X-ray data indicated that DNA is long and skinny. The data also show it has a regular pattern repeat that's characteristic of a helix. The distance of the pattern repeat and the width of the molecule are parameters that any structural model must obey. The dimensions of the DNA molecule are specified in the smallest commonly used metric units called angstrom units. Angstrom units are so small that atoms and chemical bonds joining atoms are measured in angstrom units. Well, DNA is about 20 angstrom units wide, and one turn of the DNA helix is 34 angstrom units. The 20 angstrom width can only accommodate a small number of chemically bonded atoms. Within this width, space must be given for the sugar phosphate backbone and the four bases, which are given letter designations, the shorthand for their names, A, T, G, and C. And each of those bases consists of a group of atoms, so all that's got to be shoehorned into 20 angstrom width. The regularity of the DNA molecule, it's consistently 20 angstrom units wide, must, however, allow for irregularity in nucleotide composition since information, which is what DNA is all about, 
is conveyed by the sequence of A's, T's, G's, and C's, and different genes have different sequences. In 1952, a uh, paper was published that established what are called Chargaff's Rules. And Chargaff's Rules state that in all DNA molecules from any living creature, the concentration of A equals the concentration of T, the concentration of G equals the concentration of C. The bases A and G consist of two rings of atoms, but C and T consist of only a single ring. So that immediately brings up the question of how DNA containing those four bases can have a consistent width. And then finally, ideally, the structure of DNA should provide a mechanism whereby DNA can make a copy of itself, because that's what happens when cells divide. The DNA previously has to have created a copy so that each of the two new cells in cell division has its own copy. These were features, then, of a puzzle. Watson and Crick went directly to the big picture rather than getting bogged down in details like the rest of the scientific community. They took these attributes of DNA as givens and they built scale models of DNA to try to find a layout that would harmonize all the givens. They were explorers. They let others do the focused bench research. Bench research generates data through a process that relies heavily on exploitation. Both exploitation and exploration are needed, but Watson and Crick made the bold decision that enough was already known about DNA to make posing a structure plausible. If you're good at visualization and you want to think about what they came up with, picture DNA as a spiral staircase with two sides. The sides are two strong sugar phosphate backbones. The width from one side to the other is 20 angstrom units. The backbones attach to steps, which are made of two rings paired with one ring, either A with T or G with C. Each step is offset by 36 degrees from the previous step. This means that going up 10 steps constitutes one revolution of the helix. 10 steps takes us up 34 angstrom units. There's no limit on how long the DNA molecule can be, but it will always be the same 20 angstrom width. Listeners who want to see the structure of DNA that was proposed with a few tweaks since 1953, will need to go to my website at deependurable.com. Here's a summary quote from a uh, a book called The Eighth Day of Creation, which recounts this time and following uh, discoveries in the area of molecular biology. The author says, quote, At the time, the discovery of the structure of DNA was hard, not intrinsically, but because its importance and uniqueness were not well recognized. The discovery was hard also because the data were scattered, confusing, in some respects meager, in others overabundant. To begin with, 
it was not clear what was most relevant in all that was known of the chemical composition of nucleic acids. Neither Watson nor Crick was a biochemist. They were ignorant of a long and erudite scientific tradition. But at least they were not blinded by it. This example then shows us the potential power of exploration. There comes a time when exploitation won't cut it. Exploitation gets stuck because it doesn't include all the concepts needed, or it isn't focused on answering the right question, or one or more of the concepts that it's using are misconceptions. Healthy problem solving involves a purposeful toggling between disciplined exploitation of what's currently known and exploration employed in a purposeful search for new ideas and perspectives. Join me in two weeks as we examine patterns and puzzles. Music